Good morning. Well, the moment I've been waiting for has arrived. It's an interesting process to go through to get ready to preach a sermon, so I thank you for your prayers and your support. So as we uh, have been making you aware, our pastor, Dan Halleck, and his family have uh, gone to Swaziland, and I've been checking my email, and I've been looking at Facebook and trying to figure out, did they actually arrive? And I'm happy to report that, yes, they did arrive, and even better, all their luggage arrived with them. (laughs) Can you imagine caring for a small child with their luggage in Germany and you in Swaziland? Or maybe worse, your luggage in, in Germany and you in Swaziland. So, I'll be preaching this Sunday and next, and then Dylan will be taking the last two Sundays in June as our pastor is off uh, serving the Lord in this other country. And as I was thinking about uh, what, I would, what, I, what I would preach upon, I I realized that uh, we haven't had an update for you, a financial update that the elders provide on a regular basis. And so I want you to take your bulletin and turn to the back page. And there, under the general fund giving update, you'll notice that in the three months that we are into our new budget, we are now $21,000 behind budget. And that's concerning. And so as I prayed about it and as I thought about it, I thought, I think the Lord wants me to speak about money. That's probably one of the most frightening topics you can preach on. And then this week on the internet, I saw this. Folks, if we gave our entire budget for this year, shut the doors, stopped paying our bills, released all of our pastoral staff, and paid that money to this ministry for the jet, we would be doing that for 100 years to reach the $54 million that he's asking for for a jet. I'm making no comment about his ministry. Uh, That's not my point. But today I felt that it would be a good thing for us to look at what does the Lord say about money and how does Cedar Home treat that subject. And as I began to dig into it and to prepare, I realized that this could be a probably 15 or 20 part series. So we're going to go on a whirlwind tour It's going to feel really, really fast. But I wanted to give each of us a framework for how God looks at money. Some of you, this will be a review. Some of you, it may be new. So, here we go. I want to begin in Psalm 24, verse 1, that says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. The ancient Hebrew mindset was such that the earth and everything that was created belongs to God. Now, it's relayed in the creation account in the book of Genesis. As you read it, it says, the Lord 
said this, called it into being. He gave it a name. He saw that it was good. In the Hebrew mind, this shows ownership. If you have the power to create something, if you have the power to name something, you own it. And so this was their mindset. Everything in the world that was created belongs to God. Now, also in the book of Genesis, it says that God has given man control over all of the created things and is allowed to use it to do what he has asked us to do. But a problem came in, and that was the problem of sin. And so now it says that in the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Briars and thistles will grow instead of the food that you're trying to, to, to grow. It's right in the middle of growing season right now. How many of you are spending a lot of time on your hands and knees in the garden weeding? That stuff grows without any encouragement. It wants to take over the world, and you have to pull it out. While the, the precious fruit and vegetable that you planted struggles, it just doesn't seem fair. Now, out of this idea that, that man belonged uh, or had God's possessions was able to use it, the belief grew that if you were wealthy, then you were a righteous person and that God had blessed you. And the converse was also true that if you were poor, then somehow you had committed sin and you were cursed of God. Now, that was an error that crept in because that is not God's view. And we find it especially in the book of Job when Job is uh, bereft of all of his possessions, all of his family, all in one day. And his friends come and they sit with him. And for three days, they say nothing. They commiserate with him. They keep their mouths shut. And then... They encouraged Job, if you would just confess, God would forgive you. And we've talked about that before, how that's a correct message, but it was applied in the wrong situation because Job had done nothing wrong. And he defends himself and he says, I have done nothing wrong to deserve this. And in the end, he's vindicated. And of course, he says, I repent in dust and ashes because he recognizes his place before God. So in the Old Testament, the idea that you should give a portion of what God has given you in worship is instituted. The first part of it is the sacrificial system that is uh, officially instituted. In that system, you are to give the best of your flock, the best of what you have. In other words, as a as an owner of sheep, you weren't supposed to go out and find the ones that were going to die anyway and give those to God. God wanted you to go to your flock, find the, the best of the best, and that would be what you sacrificed. If you were a grower of crops, the idea of first fruits is what you were supposed to do, that of the first of your produce, the best of your produce, that was what you brought to God and sacrificed to him. Now that also reflected the economy of the time, which was based on a barter system. 
Money, as we know it, didn't come into play in, uh, in the world until probably three, maybe 400 years before Jesus was born. And the way money came into, into being was kings wanted to have something upon which they could stamp their image and let you know that they were your ruler and that everything you had was due to their generosity and provision for you. So coins were minted about three or 400 years before Jesus, and they had the picture of the king on one side and his God on the other. The other thing that was instituted in the Old Testament was the tithe. The tithe was set as one-tenth of your increase. Now, that was pretty easy to do. If you had a, cl- a flock and you had uh, 10 sheep or lambs born in a year, then one out of 10 would be sacrificed to the Lord, and so on. Uh, if you grew a crop and you had 40 bushels of produce, then four would go to the, to the temple, and 36 would be for you. This idea of tithing was a way for God to show, or for you to show God, that you trusted in him, that you could get by on 90% of what he provided for you. This was also seen in the Sabbath day, that you rested one out of seven. Instead of being busy and and working and continuing to try to, to gain increase on that seventh day, you would rest. This was also true of your land. Every seven years, the land was supposed to lie fallow and be unused. And this would be a cycle of seven sevens, which would be 49. This is math, by the way, okay? I wasn't very good at it, but I I practiced ahead of time. So there were 49 years, so that would be seven groups of sevens that you would let your land lay fallow. And then on the 50th year, that was called the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all of the land that had been sold to some other person reverted back to the original owners so that people were not bereft of their land. They could sell it. It could be income for them in some other way. But in the year of Jubilee, it would return back to the family. Now, the other thing that was instituted in the Old Testament was the 12 tribes of Israel, and the Levites were the priests. They had no land. They were totally dependent on the 11 other tribes to bring a tithe to the temple and give it to the Lord. There, the Levites would burn the offering as a sweet savor to the Lord, but they were also allowed to take a portion of that as food for themselves. How are we doing? Whirlwindy enough? Okay. The other thing that the Old Testament teaches us is that God will provide. This is found in the story of Abraham when he takes his son Isaac. And Isaac, being a smart kid, says, hey, we've got the wood and we've got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? You remember I preached on that a number of months ago. And Abraham, without really knowing what he was saying, and yet knowing what he was saying, said, God will provide. And so in the story, just as he's ready to sacrifice his son, then they find a ram caught in the thicket. 
But that whole idea of God will provide is central to the viewpoint of the Old Testament. God will provide everything that you need. Now, Jesus takes on this theme and he sums it up by saying that the lilies of the field are even greater than Solomon. So now we're going to start looking at New Testament passages. So turn or read on the screen Matthew chapter 6. And I'll read 25 to 32. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And then verse 33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He knows that you have those needs. And he's, not, he's telling you not to worry about them. So now we move to the New Testament. Again, Jesus taught an awful lot about money. And for him, it was a matter of the heart. In Luke chapter 12, verse 34, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's a really important thing for us to understand. That what I value, what I love, what I treasure is where my heart will be. It doesn't matter what my mouth is saying, it's what my heart is saying. Jesus had other things to say about the way we observe money. One of them is found in Luke chapter 6. Verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, sometimes the televangelists like to use this verse as a a way for you to give more to them, telling you that you can't outgive God, and so if you give all kinds of money to them, then somehow in this prosperity mindset, God will give back to you. Now, 
I think the base of what this is saying is true, but I, I sometimes wonder if asking for $54 million for a private jet is going over the top. But it isn't just money. God wants us to use our gifts and our talents. So let's turn to Luke chapter 19 and see verses 12 to 26. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the, the, the word that's often used instead of minas is talents, which was another measurement of money. But of course, in our world, talent means something else. Uh, you get to see that on TV. America's got talent, right? And sometimes you shake your head and go, what talent? But the idea is, is that each one of us, as a member of the church, has been given a gift and in some cases, several gifts by the Holy Spirit to be put to use in the church. And so our responsibility is to be faithful, to use what we have, to use what we have been given in the service of the church. So if your talent is great, the scripture says that much will be required of you. If your talent is little, not as much will be required of you. It's on a kind of a, a sliding scale, and that's kind of an important concept. And then the last thing that uh, Jesus taught, well, no, I guess I shouldn't say that because Jesus taught a lot, but the last thing I'm going to talk about here is found in Luke 16, verses 10 through 13. 
It says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's the one that brings us up short the most because money is a central part of our life. It's what we go to work for every day. It's part of what we need as a church budget, as I pointed out. We're short now. Doesn't mean that we're starting to panic. Uh, As elders of the church, our responsibility is to see that we meet the budget if possible, and so that's part of our responsibility to make you aware of that need and let you know that, that it's there. And then as you respond, then we need to plan and see if there are further changes that need to be made. Well, in our last little bit here, I want to say that Paul, the Apostle Paul, also taught about money. And the main part of his teaching can be summed up in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Verses six to eight. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So realistically, it all comes down to love. And where I I get that is from Matthew chapters chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, where Jesus tells us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, We know that in ourselves, we do not possess the power to love God. Any attempt to do this without the blood of Jesus is religion. I have no desire to teach you to be religious, which seems a little strange. You come to church, but I don't want you to be religious. I don't want you to learn how to be a religious person. The Pharisees demonstrated the ultimate end of what it was like to be religious. And it was in the Pharisees' prayer, Dear Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I'm, I give, I tithe, I give of even my mint and my dill and my cumin. 
very small, tiny little things where you'd have to take a, a piece of glass and portion out each grain. That religious exercise ends up in pride at how good I am and how God must love me. That's not what I want. We love God because he first loved us. And that love was demonstrated in Christ Jesus who came to the earth and took our penalty for sin and died on the cross so that we can be a child of God and placed into the family of Christ. That is what Cedar Home exists for, to let the world know that that's what Jesus did. That heart change is what we need. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's where that love comes from that enables us to be the cheerful giver that God has asked us to be. So now I want to let you know how we here at Cedar Home approach the idea of money from what we have talked about. First, one person elected by the church body keeps track of your giving if you put it in an envelope that they can track. They take that envelope, they enter it under your name, it goes into the computer, and not one person receives a report on what you have given. The only person who receives a report on what you have given is you. At the end of the year, for tax purposes, you are provided a total of what you have given through that envelope system so that you can use it for your tax returns. Other than that, no one knows and no one really cares what you give. And the reason that no one knows or cares is because that is between you and the Lord only. Any amount you give, any amount you choose to give is strictly between you and the one to whom you will give an account of your life. That's pretty serious. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be in that, in that equation because that's between you and the Lord. And this accounting is not just a monetary accounting. It's also the accounting of your time and your talents and your gifts of your abilities in supporting the work of the church. The other thing that's important here at Cedar Home is that giving is a part of worship. It's giving back to the Lord with a cheerful heart in joy and thanksgiving and acknowledging that it is he who has given you your abilities to earn the money in the first place. And he's giving you opportunities where you can bless others. And so when that gift is given, we pray that God will bless his work. We pray that God will bless the missionaries for whom some of that will be used to support. We pray for our pastors and our staff who work so diligently on our behalf during the week in serving the local church and the church at large. 
The other thing that's important is that we are not going to look at your value and determine how much value you have to the church. The book of James is very clear on this, that it is wrong to show deference based on economic standing. So James chapter two, verses one to five say, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, God has not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. We have ushers that are involved in getting a place for everyone to sit. And I don't know if we've done any formal training of them, but we want to make sure that they are welcoming to all, and we encourage you to be welcoming to all because we're not focused on the money. We're not focused on what you can bring to the church. We're focused on what we as a church can do to reach the, the world for Christ and how your part in that can be played will be determined by the Holy Spirit. There's some real freedom in that. And we, as your elders and deacons, we have a responsibility to encourage you, to strengthen you, to teach you, to equip you, to help you to do that very thing. So in closing, I want to read Philippians 4, 10 through 19. Like I said, this is a bit of a whirlwind tour. Each one of these could have been an entire sermon. Paul is speaking about God's provision. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my troubles. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And that, folks, is how we as elders look at the budget. God will supply. 
God will provide. He will give it to you. And as you give it to the Lord, he will supply those needs. And we believe that. And we trust that. And we know that. And that's the end of the sermon. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, maker of all things, owner and ruler of the universe, we come before you today with grateful hearts. You have taught us to love by giving us new life through your Son, Jesus. You are the provider of all that we need. You have placed us in the body of Christ to be a part of reaching the world with this message of salvation. We desire to serve you, but at times we are not all that we would be. We ask that you would forgive us when we fall and restore us with your heart so full of mercy and grace. We pledge ourselves anew to honor you with our time, our talents, and resources. Please use them and us to spread the joy of our salvation to those in Stanwood, Arlington, Washington, and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.